0: When I tracked David Lindo down for a chat, he was, not surprisingly, out and about and looking for birds. This has been the abiding passion of his life ever since he was a little kid. David is the urban birder, a broadcaster, writer, speaker, and educator on a mission to engage city folk around the world with the environment through the medium of birds. This week's sponsor. the creative design agency Off Grid, who work with an environmental and ethical focus, weaving time outdoors into their working process and choosing to work with wonderful, like-minded people, (laughs) and me, um, who love the outdoors and cherish the natural world. Their work focuses on branding, digital design, illustration, and book design, which they have helped me with on my recent few books. Plus, they have their own sustainable print shop. You can find them at www.somewhereoffgrid.com or follow Somewhere Off Grid on Instagram. Okay, because the first question I was going to ask you was, you, I know you've been doing these uh, conservation conversations with YouTube videos. Um, by the way, you've got better bookshelves than... Uh, Caroline Lucas. That's always my favorite part of Zoom sleeping. <laughs> <snooping. laughs> so my first question was going to be, what advice can you offer me on interviewing people? But I suspect your answer might be for me to sort my act together, sort my act out and work out the uh, technology first. Is that a serious question? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I want some advice on how to interview people well before I start interviewing you.
1: Um. Well, that's a question that I've never answered before, really. Um, and that's um, assuming that you, th- you or anyone else thinks that I'm good. But I think it's all about making people feel comfortable um, and relaxed and not to ask them boring questions. I think it's really important to sort of, you know, start off having a nice chat and just sort of kind of meld into it in a way. and. Um, Obviously, think about who you're talking to. Um, I mean, I'm the world's worst when it comes to research. You know, sometimes I literally do an hour before I meet someone. But in a way, I kind of like that because it keeps it a bit edgy. Um, for example, if I'm interviewing someone about a book they've written, nine, nine and a half times t- out of ten, I haven't read the book or I skim read it. Um, but I always maintain straight away that this is not about your book, this is about you, mm. so that so that way you can actually just have a conversation and and the book scenarios can actually come into it quite naturally. There was a time though when I nearly got caught because um, I was chatting to someone, um, or chatting with someone, I was actually interviewed, uh, in uh, by you know, two of us being interviewed by one person, and I'd started reading her book, but not obviously got to the crucial bit because she revealed that she was a lesbian. And my instinct was to say, Oh, really? I never knew. And then I realized if I'd have said that, then it would have <laughs> revealed the fact that I hadn't read the book. <laughs> but anyway, I think it's, um, it's it's all about trying to it's just be relaxed and getting people to feel, you know, as if it's not uh, the Spanish Inquisition. It's just going to be a nice conversation. Okay. That's, why I try, that's why I try and engender my in conservation with. I just try, and it's nice because I get most people, if not all, coming back and saying, you know, they really enjoyed a the conversation. They felt as if it was a safe place. And they tend to start revealing stuff that, um, you know, you, you didn't expect. So that's, yeah, that's a good question, actually. I'm not, I wasn't prepared for that one. Okay.
0: So already you started well. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> this, this conversation with you has started well, because I'm, I'm in my shed um, uh, near London, where I, where I work. And just outside my window here, I've got some bird feeders. And just before we called, uh, there was a great spotted woodpecker on there, which I found very exciting. It's uh, made a nice change to the usual uh, array of blue tits and pigeons scratching around at the bottom.
1: Well, I think that's a very good addition to the list. Um, I'm very uh, impressed actually. Yeah, that's I'm a good sitting one. on the edge of a eucalyptus plant, eucalyptus plantation um, outside a town, a small town called Al which is in the region in Spain called Extremadura. Madura. And I'm actually leading a tour. I'm, trying to, I'm on the quest to find some people, a
0: great bustard or two. Fantastic. And what's more important, the quest or the bustard? I think
1: to get the bustard. I mean, I so far so good in terms of um, they've seen stuff that they didn't expect. So I'm already you know earned quite a few brandy points. And there's two species of bustard to be found in Europe: the little bustard and the great bustard. The great bustard is a turkey-sized bird. It's basically the um, one of the heaviest, if not, I think after the mute swan, the heaviest uh, flying bird in Europe. Um, it's a big one, the male is anyway, but they're tough to see despite their size because here in, in where I am at the moment, there's vast kind of grasslands and you have to just scan. And um, I'm glad that she, uh, they've asked for great and not little bustard because little bustard um, has declined phenomenally and it's really tough to find. Great bustard. I'm pretty sure after a couple of hours, I should be able to find one or two to show them. But little bastard, sometimes I spend,
0: you know, weeks looking for that. But yeah, I suppose you have to enjoy those weeks for other reasons just than the end. There's the bird.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not actually just spending weeks looking for it. But I mean, whilst I'm in Spain, um, I tend to kind of, you know, try and just look for stuff and, this year, I've been keeping um, what birders term as a year list. Um, and I think the lockdown, because I, I spent lockdown in Spain, so it kind of made sense to focus my attention in Spain. And there's certain species that are kind of tough to get during the year. One of them is Little Bustard. Um, in previous years, I've not, I mean, not that I've been here all the time, but when I have been back and just been casually looking, I've not seen one until maybe even November, December or if at all
0: so you know that's a, that's a tough bird mm. okay um i i'm um, interested mostly i'm going to, the thing that interested me about you is the notion of urban plus bird watching because i'm guessing there, are, i could have found plenty of people interested in the bird watching in the amazon or different landscapes like that but the urban side of it really interests me so how many bird species are there in London, roughly?
1: Urban birding is a very interesting concept because um, it's something which is really, at the end of the day, indistinguishable from birding elsewhere. You're just birding in an urban environment instead of a a rural or whatever environment. Um, And a lot of the habitats are replaced or look different. So, you know, a woodland is, in fact, just a little wood in the park and... Buildings become cliffs, so its it's really um, it's, it's really no different um, in terms of species in London, well, put it this way there's been six hundred and twenty different species, roughly seen, heard, and you know in Britain since records began nearly two hundred years ago, and some of these species have only been found once and off those, I say ninety five percent have been found in urban areas, and off those. Around about 360 species have been found in London. Wow. And it's possible to see 200 species in London in a year if you really worked at it. So it just shows that you know the boundaries are fairly um, merged in many ways. I mean, there's some species that I don't think have ever been found in urban areas. Funny enough, we've been talking about two of them now, Great Busted and Little buster. I don't think I've ever been found anywhere near an urban area. And then things like, actually, you say that Humboldt penguin, uh, which is found in South America. I went to Twitch one in Lima, in Peru. Um, (laughs) um, I didn't see it. It was blind, apparently, but I was blind too because I never saw it. (laughs) Um, So, yes, penguins do actually show up in urban areas. (laughs) But um, in the UK, yeah, there's certain species that I've never turned up. But then there's others that you'd never expect, like puffin. I remember watching puffin standing on Hampstead Bridge and know, popping on, on the actual 10s. So um, seabirds turn up, you know. The great thing about urban birding for me is the fact that it's, it's a challenge. A, it's a challenge um, for people to get their heads around, and it's really interesting when I talk to people who just think this just pigeons and sparrows. And B, it's a personal challenge because whenever I go to a, a city, I've been to about 350 now in the last 15, 16 years. I think I've been to more cities birding than anyone on this planet. But, um, you know, sometimes you kind of like, for example, I write columns about um, my exploits in cities and sometimes I, I do a cursory glance to do some research and there's absolutely nothing written about the city. I mean, the, the last example I can give you is Seville in Spain, which you'd have thought would have been quite well covered. There's absolutely not a word about where to go birding in Seville. It's all about Cota de Doniana, which is, um, you know, 40 miles outside. But nothing actually within the city, so you become an urban explorer, and yeah. it's all about recognizing. It's
0: all about recognizing using your senses and recognizing suitable places that could be good for birds. I think that's exactly what I find interesting. Is you're trying to break down the difference between city and countryside, and when we're in a city, we go shopping, and then when we're in, and then we go out to the countryside, and we. Go to, na- go to nature, so you don't need to leave the city to find wild places no, wild places exist even inside your house
1: like what Well you can find spiders and yeah. all sorts of invertebrates I mean that's, they're wild places you know yeah. so nature occurs everywhere I mean, just open your door, look out the window, look up, and mm. surround you. It's just getting people to focus on that yeah and I think during lockdown that's one thing that. Has helped because people suddenly realize that there's a wealth of all birds singing and they didn't realize they were there, but they've always been there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it's a it's very, it's like a, a perspective shift on this, really, isn't it? But do you yeah. so there's a phrase you use which I love which you've been birding since the devil was a boy, which is a, <laughs> a fantastic phrase. So for, for, for you, or is urban bird watching like an important powerful thing in life or is it just a hobby i haven't i haven't really phrased that well but for me i'll, for I'll me, leave it with it what at that yeah for me yeah in your own life is it something that's been just a hobby or does it add is it more than a hobby well it's, it's my reason job,
1: but... it's my reason for being okay. i it's it's my it's my destiny it was foretold that i'd be uh sort of professing about um the the delights of watching birds and other wildlife in urban areas um partially due to the the effects it has on you. I mean, prior to our knowledge now, but it's good for your health and well-being, I've always known that it makes you feel good. I mean, I've felt bad in the past and gone out into a park or somewhere. And the moment you connect to nature, you feel 10 times better. You feel, you know, if you've got problems, you walk into an area, you start watching birds, you blot out everyone and everything around you. And you become totally immersed. And at the end of the session, you actually walk away thinking to yourself, actually, that's it. That's the, that's the cure. That's the, that's the solution to the problem I've had. So I've always taken it as one of those you know, great things to do if you, you know, find yourself in a tight corner. Um, but yes, yeah, my reason for being, I mean, it started off as a, I mean, well, I didn't know I was an urban bird when I first started watching birds. I was just told that people needed to go to the countryside to see birds and I was told that by people who didn't know anything about birds Um, but then I also had no one else to take me there anyway so I started by looking around me and that's that's how it kind of began but I kind of always knew that there was something interesting in it and for me since I've become since I've been professionally doing it for the last 16 years it's become a bit of a It's a bit of a sales job, really. It's a bit of a concept sales um, idea because um, my background is in sales and marketing. And when I kind of dreamt up this whole idea of sort of promoting Urban Burning, it was about people. It was about getting people engaged. And I knew that I had to sell it to the media as something interesting. So I thought, let's try and sell it as a life choice uh, along the same lines as meditation and yoga, um, and I sold it like that, and the media just lapped it up. It was just another way of selling the idea of connecting to nature, and that's mm. that's that's the reason why I, I kind of pushed the urban birding thing. But urban birding itself has been around since the first thatched, thatched roof, the first you know parking meter that was sunk. You know, it's been around since then, but it's always been deemed as the kind of proper bird watching, proper birding, um, poor cousin, poor, very poor relation. Even to this day, there's certain quarters of sort of elitist, snobbish birders, ornithologists who do, who do not respect or, th- or think that urban birding is like not real birding. Whereas for me, I think, urban um, it's funny enough, I was just talking about it today, I think urban birding for me is actually, in a way, even tougher, and it hones your senses even more because you've got to work a lot harder. Um, um, so you kind of really become, I think for me, I've become very sharp-eyed um, because of it, because I, I lived in a city and I was I was governed by movement. So when I saw movement, I was looking at it. So you kind of train yourself and you become very, very sharp in that respect. Whereas I think sometimes when you live in a, an area, a rural area where there's lots of birds already around, like you live by the coast and there's waders and seabirds and stuff, you may, I wouldn't say definitely, but there's a potential to become a bit blase about it. And I've actually been out with people who um, kind of just know that's gonna be there, that's gonna be there, that's gonna be there. Whereas for me, I never really had that. I've had to think that could be there, but then anything else could be there. So my mind is always five times more open sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. I mean, my mind's always open, but what I mean is that sometimes, you know, the young people I'm with aren't so open about it. They've just have got this list of birds that turn up every year in their heads. And that's it. Whereas for me, I, I look at that list. I respect it. I scrunch it up, throw it over my shoulder, do my sort of back heel, but into a bin because I don't litter. And then I think, right, anything could turn up anywhere at any time.
0: Nice. Yeah, and that then makes it exciting, doesn't it? And I think listening to you speak and reading about your line, I think one of the things that you seem to be doing is making urban bird watching seem quite cool like a cool thing that young kids might be more inclined to to get involved with um is that something that you're consciously trying to do or is it just this is my personality and i'm not i'm not going to wear a green anorak i'm going to wear whatever i like and go do it
1: well it's a bit of both but mostly to make it more accessible i mean not just in the uk but around the world and it's interesting because i've been setting up birding projects around the world and the latest one has been in Cleveland, USA, in Ohio, and I set up this urban birding program. Went over there last November, spent, you know, a couple of weeks there, and galvanized them into setting up these walks, urban walks, but predominantly in areas where underprivileged kids, a lot of Afro American kids lived, to get them out in the neighborhoods so that they can actually ostensibly look for birds but in reality it's all about getting to know your neighborhood and getting to fall in love with your neighborhood because it's all about falling in love this whole thing i'm doing is about love it's about getting people to love where they live to care about you know the the environment around where they are because in that way you can extrapolate it out and understand that the rest of the world needs the same love and you you know you start in your love where you are radiates out as opposed to thinking well, it's over there. I don't have to worry about it. I can still throw my plastic bags in the river. It's fine, you know. So it's about t- teaching people that it's, you know, it's right in our doorsteps. Mm. So I, the urban birdie thing is not even, Alistair. It's not even about birds. You know, it's actually about people. For me,
0: and I, I like what you said just then about it's a way of helping people get to know their local area. What I found myself with. adventuring i like to do is all i what i really need to do is find an excuse to get me out the front door and head off because i know then interesting stuff will happen and i i read a uh, you did someone interviewed you um and they met you at um wormwood scrubs and they said it's a 20 minute walk from where i've grown up and yet i've never been here so you're by by taking them there you're helping people really just explore locally so birdwatching becomes exploration as well.
1: It's, yeah, for me, it's always been that way. As a kid, um, when I lived in Wembley, um, there was a park just down the road from me, Monk's Park. And unbeknown um, to me, that became my local patch. And one half of the park, it's kind of, it was kind of split laterally by the River Brent. And on one side of the park, which was my side, it was all very kind of manicured and as a park. But across the river, was in those days a lot of waste ground you know because it hadn't been built upon yet so that was my countryside so i'd cross the river and i'd explore this wilderness in the very commas and make camps and i was with my mate i got a mate involved in birding who's now still my mate birding um but he was interested in science and you know we used to get make bombs using chemicals we buy from the uh, the chemists you know and make dens and stuff like that but also study the bird life. Um, So that was really exciting, and and that's always been with me. So whenever I go to a new city, I'm really excited about looking at the different areas within the city. Um, Often, as I said earlier, often there's not much information. Even when you speak to birders that live in that very city, they may not actually go birding in the city. They tend to go out into the countryside. So it's a journey for them as well. So I end up looking at a map. So, right, here's a green spot. We're going there. We're going to that dump. We're going to this cemetery. We're going to that park. You know, and you kind of over over time you build up a picture of what kind of places work. Um, one of my favorite places in urban areas is on top of tall buildings. Um, I love it because often, especially during migration time, you're on the same level as some of the birds migrating. So it's quite kind of exciting to, to be on this sort of post, sticking up in the sky, watching birds fly past. Wow. It's great.
0: Wow, that is great. Um, A lot of what you just said then is so similar to the ways I go try and plan adventures when I'm in new places of looking at maps and then hatching little plans from it and I'm, um, I'm very new to being interested in birds. I wouldn't call myself a bird watcher in any way but in recent times I've started to become interested in it and what I really like, the reason I like it is that they make me Notice more. They make me pay more attention, and especially when you when I learn the call of a new bird, I don't even see it. You hear it, and you think, "Ah, it's a woodpecker over there." That just brings to me a whole extra level of wildness to wherever I am. So I think that's what I like about birds: is they they're teaching me to be more observant about the world around me.
1: Yeah, and you're 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 in a good position because you're already observant. You know, you're out exploring the world anyway. So for you, it's fine tuning which is really good. Whereas other people, you know, they're not even, in that, in, they're not even at any stage in terms of explore, exploration. You know, I'm, I've often been places, like I remember going to Slough once, having a meeting in Slough because I was helping with the restoration of a park and the locals were saying, oh, so where can we go? And I'm thinking, y- you live here. If I were you, I'd just go walk down the street, turn left <laughs> and see what happens. But sometimes you have to hold people's hands and say, well, actually... It's okay to go into that park and have a walk around. If you walk further, you might come across a river. It's lovely, you know. Whereas for us, you and I, it's, it's second nature. Um, I just don't understand how you can go through life without without having the curiosity to to see what's around the corner, you know. Mm. To to climb up a little hill and see what what the view is, or you know, to me, it's just natural.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, I very much understand that. Um, so you you started the the campaign, or I'm not sure it was called contest campaign for Britain's first national bird, which which got a lot of media interest. There were all the usual suspects in there of I Robin and Blackbird was, which one was number one?
1: Uh, um, well, the Robin, the Robin won, and Robin, Robin won. was number one. Robin was number one from the very first moment okay. uh, I opened the uh, the vote, but. <laughs> I lied to the media. I tried to say the Blackbird was doing well because I wanted the Blackbird to win.
0: Okay, well, I was going to ask you that. What, what did you vote for?
1: I voted for the Blackbird um, because I think the song's evocative. It's kind of, you know, for me, it reminds me of my life in, in England. Um, and I just felt that the Robin represented Britain for all the wrong reasons. But when I think about it now, I think maybe it was, well, maybe it is the right choice. I mean, it's small, it's feisty, it's territorial, it picks fights. That's Great Britain, isn't it? <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, indeed. So my I was thinking this morning, in my vote, I was torn between Swift, Kestrel, and Kingfisher. But I think I'd pick the Swift.
1: Okay, well, you you would have done very badly with the Swift because the Swift wasn't even in the top 10, nor was the Kestrel.
0: <laughs> okay. So... So your vote would have been a wasted vote. <laughs> oh well, I'm always up for being a cult classic, not a bestseller. <laughs> yeah, they're my fit. Do you like in London? Do you like the parakeets?
1: Uh, no, is a short answer. I'm the I swing anyway. No, um, I find I don't know. I've always felt that I don't belong. I sound very xenophobic and racist now, but uh, in fact, I remember giving a talk at uh, Wormwood Scrubs Prison. And um, I was talking to a bunch of inmates, not sure what any of them did, but anyway, to be there. But anyway, I um, I gave a talk and I talked about parakeets. I was talking about the birds I can see, um, conceivably see from the prison. And I mentioned parakeets. I said, you know, they should be sent back um, to where they came from. Um, And someone said, you know, call me actually, actually call me a racist for saying that. And I actually thought about it. I thought, yeah, I do sound a bit, do I? Do I <laughs> yes. But no, I'm not. I'm not fussing them. But then, having said that, I think that they're very good because they um, draw people into nature. People see the flocks of them, and they it's wonderment because they do, you know, flock in the in the evenings in these massive roosts, and they're quite dramatic to watch. And it's sometimes people's first real taste of a spectacle. I think you know if that's a gateway to get people involved. Then so be it.
0: Do you like pigeons?
1: I didn't used to, but now I'm I'm a pigeon liker. Absolutely, I fall short of saying love, but certainly a liker.
0: Not yet a main... fancier.
1: No, i will never keep them. Okay, yeah. but um, now they're interesting because they're bright and very intelligent birds. They've got one of the few animals that have self awareness. Um, they um, they're very graceful in flight. They've been with us for a long time. The fact that they're in our cities, it's not their fault, it's, you know, they're victims of our excess. Um, and they are peregrine fodder, which I like as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I read a good book actually recently about pigeon fancying. Um, someone, I can't remember the book, uh, keep, who keep, started keeping them in London and going off the races. It's really, really interesting insight into a world I knew nothing at all about. Never really crossed my mind.
1: Yeah, pigeon fancying is interesting in a way because um, there's a conflict, and that's between the pigeon fanciers and birds of prey. Because, you know, the the pigeons tend to be less kind of aware of danger. And if you've got a pigeon like a tumbler that kind of flies up and then tumbles down, that's like a red flag for a peregrine because
0: they think it's in trouble and just (laughs) come and take it. And it's easy meat. Mm. Yeah. So what what response do you do you get when you give talks in prisons?
1: Well, I've only done the once, the one talk, and it was quite an interesting response. In but I was petrified. It took me six months to actually muster up the courage to to do it. And when I was actually in the room with all the people, I mean, I remember the warden taking me taking me into. But first of all, I went to the prison, and it was just a horrible experience anyway. And in security, they checked my my talk on a stick. I checked it to make sure I wasn't highlighting any tunnels or, you know, any escape routes. Um, and then I was led to this room by the warden and the, the room was this battered up horrible paint peeling off the walls room. And in my mind's eye, I was thinking of silence of the lambs. I was thinking it would be like thick plate, plate you know, thick pane of glass and microphone me at one end and people at the other side of the, uh, the glass. But anyway, the warden said to me, they're going to come in one by one, two by two, carrying a chair each. Um, make sure that um, they create an aisle so that they can. Uh, sorry, I've got a truck going past. So that they can go to the toilet. And I'm thinking, really? And he said, yeah, because it, if, if that's not the case, they may clamber over each other. A fight may break out. You should be safe. But if not, give me a shout. And then he just walked off. <laughs> so I, I left. I was left alone in this room, and I was thinking, what should I do? And I thought the best thing was to introduce myself to each and every one that came in. So one by one, they came in, two by two. There were the classic bruisers. You know, there's all sorts of different people. I didn't even think or want to think about what they all did um, in terms of uh, their crimes. But it was about basically making contact with them and then um, asserting the power in the room, really, I suppose. So there was this big... It turned out to be a Dutchman sitting by my projector because there were sixty people in this room in the end, and I remember saying to him, um, "Excuse me, would you mind moving away from my projector?" And he said, "Of course, of course." He moved away straight away, and I thought, "I've got the power. Yeah. I have the power." Yeah. So then I I gave the talk. So basically, it was it was actually very successful. You know, the warden came back at an hour and a half later, surprised to see everyone in the room because he, he said normally. People start walking out after 20 minutes or chatting amongst themselves, and they're all engaged. You know, they applauded me at the end, they had questions and stuff. So they're engaged, which was good. But I think it's about how, like, we, how we spoke in the beginning, you know, when we talked about interviewing, I think it's about making people feel comfortable. You know, you're one of them. You know, don't worry about it, it's all good kind of feeling, mm-hmm. which is it's, important to engender.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess when all your freedom's been taken away, you can still appreciate nature as long as you can either see the sky or even hear the sky.
1: Yeah. If Yeah. But again, some people just don't, they're not switched onto it at all. We've become so urban. We're, we're so tied to looking at our, our phones, that we mm. think that we live in a bubble and, and that there's no nature at all to be seen unless it's on a David Attenborough program or it's going to be in the middle of the countryside away from prior Nice.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, um, I, I read a nice thing. Um, I'm going to, I was going to read a couple of sentences. It says that you once took a group of London kids, mostly from ethnic minorities, on a nature walk. Um, I saw a magpie and ignored it, thinking, ah, bog-standard sighting. And then I heard them say, what's that? It's amazing. It's black. It's white. And I thought, bloody hell, they haven't even seen a magpie. So I showed them everything. Um, and I, I think that's brilliant that it's not just nature's not just David Attenborough.
1: No, yeah. no, it's not. But there is a problem of engagement, mm. and I think I think it, you know, in terms of ethnic minorities, certainly, but also I think it's an inner city thing generally that people just don't engage because they just don't think that it's for them, and they don't think it's around them anyway. And I think part of that's cultural, part of that's socio. Uh, uh, economically, um, uh, an economic thing, socio-economic situation, um, and I also think that there's an issue with the media itself—the way they portray nature. It's always seen as being out in the countryside, which sometimes the way they portray it makes you feel as if it's not for you. So there's a lot of work to be done there. So we, that's we, why we, I think that's yeah. why I think urban birding is such an important element to getting people to breaking down some of those barriers
0: we we've got there's a massive diversity in nature but there's a real lack of human diversity in the in the outdoor world at large <coughs> so h- how can we get a more diverse audience interested in nature and getting out into the wild well well i think as i said i think it's what
1: well, going back to the basics it's about education so getting kids educated from early doors and also getting their va- their families involved as well Because sometimes you get the kids excited and they go home to parents who don't understand it and it dies there straight away. So getting more sort of nature in the curriculum, getting people to think about the fact that it's all very important, it's not out there, it's actually here with us and you're part of it. So that's one thing that needs to be taught. And I think the other thing is, going back to the media, is the way they portray it. Again, they portray it, it's often a white middle-class middle-aged man talking, which puts off anyone regardless of their creed, colour race um, there's not enough diversity in that as well but you need to I mean you can't fish from a pond with no fish you need to get people interested from the first instance so that you have a steady flow of people coming through who want to get involved and then you have more people to choose from um, so I think that's for me they're the basic things that we need to do to, to get more interest I also think that in terms of the TV side of things, broadcasting there should be a much more wider range of stuff to put out. So instead of having everything, I mean, David Attenborough is amazing, he's the Don, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But instead of, instead of aiming for that all the time, why not aim for something a bit more basic as well? I think, you know, during lockdown, they missed a trick. I mean, I, if I was in control of the, the natural history unit in the, in the BBC, I'd be saying to someone, right, get your camera, go for a walk around Leicester, you know, when you're out and you exercise, shoot whatever you see, make a little film, and just tell people, this is what I saw when I was out walking. You know, that for me is so inspiring. Um, I think it's all about, or it seems to be all about entertainment now. And that the bar's been lifted the whole time with this new series, which is great. But then for me, it runs a the danger. The danger is it becomes um, just entertainment. It becomes unattainable it becomes, it makes people's expectations high so that when they do go, if they ever do go to those places, they want to, they want to see a lion take down a gazelle. You know, it's, that's the problem, I think. And I, I also think there's too much emphasis on jaws, claws, and bangs. You know, too much emphasis on spectacle. You know, there's lots of amazing things that happen outside your front door. Um, and I think we need to sort of get people to realize
0: that instead of just having them just expect to see spectacles so many things you said are exactly the same challenges i've faced in in the adventure world of of it's exactly it's amazing you swap the word bird for adventure and all that and it's exactly the same thing <laughs> you've described, uh, you well, described same, yeah. yeah you described yourself as growing up as a black kid in wembley so then given all the the um um barriers that you are just mentioning then um were all your friends and family out bird watching and if not what was, it, what was the spark that got you out there?
1: My, none of my friends or family were interested. Um, so I was on my own. I was born interested. And I think it came from a previous life. I think I was a puma in a previous life hunting birds. And I think I missed one once. And I admired the way it flew. And I thought, wow. So I became a birding puma, um, which led to my demise because I wasn't eating. But I thought, you know what? I am onto something quite interesting here. Maybe if it's possible, I'd like to sort of bring this forward and luckily i was born in uh, north west london so kind of worked from there so it was it was it was instinctive uh, it was in me already um against all the odds really my mum you know just didn't understand why her kid was interested in, in wildlife because it came from nowhere but i believe in destiny and i think that i you know it was for a reason and i think all of that has led me
0: to be with you now alistair well wow. well i'm I'm glad that the uh, the puma has arrived in my shed. This is, this is a good thing. <laughs> so you're you're very very passionate about getting people engaged in urban areas. So what simple things, simple and achievable things, can cities or towns or back gardens do to actually rewild?
1: Um, yeah, it's actually a new phrase now because it's 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 not even rewilding. It's just <clears throat> it's just making things wild, I suppose, which I'm but anyway, I think, you know, in gardens, um it's always nice to leave an area of your garden wild in a very with weeds and stuff, so that you can attract insects, which in terms and other invertebrates which in turn attract birds. I think generally in, in cities, if councils can get into the mindset of having Parks that does that do not need to be manicured within an inch of their lives. They can have undergrowth in the trees, in underneath the trees. You know, we shouldn't worry too much about the stranger danger stuff, people jumping out of bushes because how often does it happen, really? I mean, you know, no, no disrespect to those that have had that happen to them, but I'm sure it's not as as often as people expect. <clears throat> so we need to have areas of conservation areas, as people often put them, where wildlife can flourish, meadows. You know, areas in, in parks, areas in cities, in, you know, like roundabouts that are left to grow, verges that are left to grow. It's just so much better. You know, when lockdown happened, walking down, I mean, I was in Spain, but walking down the street, seeing the local park and seeing the shin high grass, it was like amazing. It looked really beautiful. But then five minutes later, just mowed down within an inch of its life. So allowing things to flourish and not thinking that neat is best because it isn't, you know. And I think it's simple things like that. And then if we can talk to people who are building houses to developers and get them to develop estates that have areas of green and blue already installed so that kids growing up can be used immediately to seeing green and blue and not have the urge to throw a shopping trolley in there, then yeah. can't be a bad thing. We need to see more blue and green and less gray. Mm. Um, Simple as that. And then build properties, build houses that have holes in them, that are built into the building, so you don't actually suffer yourself. There's no problem. But then you can have bats, you can have swifts, you can have house martins, you know, you can have insects. And you can keep the uh, wildlife going, you know, without having to do too much yourself. So it's things like that, really. I, I don't think it's too difficult, to be honest. But I think people just... I don't know. They just think that to have something that's neat is is the best way forward. And obviously, it isn't. You know, I think it's um, it's about having a balance. You know, try not to have astroturf in your garden. Try to have real grass, you know. If you're going to patch out your garden, why not just patch out a third of it and have the rest of it, you know, to nature?
0: It's things like that. Mm. There's a nice slogan, is there? Do nothing for nature, which I quite like. Just yeah, so it's good. Let yeah. it be and it'll sort itself out. So I hope you've been. In, I'm sure you've actually inspired both of my listeners today uh, to get Both, more, of them. both you've of them. got two <laughs> listeners. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm hitting the big time. My mum and my granny. Um, so to tell to tell them, what do you need to do to be a birder?
1: Not a lot, actually. I think it's about having an open mind. I think it's about just having you know a wonderment, you know, enjoying the fact that there's nature around us. I think that's the very initial start, just to open your eyes and look around yourself and see what's in your garden, see what comes to your garden, maybe get some food to attract the birds in using food. I also think that it's not that important initially to know what you're looking at, but just to know that it's there. And I think naturally you begin to gravitate towards, oh, so that's a robin, oh, that's a chaffinch. Make it happen naturally, and then it feels much better. Don't get sucked into this whole, whole idea that it's got to be competitive or you've got to have a certain list in terms of species by a certain time. That's all rubbish. It's all about doing it at your own pace. It's all about enjoying uh, nature. It's all about sitting around in the park or in your back garden and just allowing yourself to be enveloped, just tuning yourself onto the uh, natural wavelength. You know, and listening, and then eventually you begin to cut through the traffic and the people shouting off their dogs and all that sort of stuff. And you hear birds singing, you hear insects buzzing. And when you're on that level, it's so beautiful because then you're connected and it doesn't take much. And I think, you know, that's how it starts. And that's how I started, even though I had no one to show me. And then once you start realizing what's, what's what in the bird world, it's just like you. It's like, you know, you see a great spotted woodpecker and you think, oh my God, that's amazing. I've not seen one here. And I've seen it really close up and I can really see the colors on it. It's just great to, to have that discovery for yourself. You know, find yourself a local patch um, if you haven't got a garden. Or even if you have got a garden, find yourself a local patch, um, like a local park or somewhere. And walk around it. Spend time getting to know your environment, getting to love your environment. And over a period of time, you begin to realize who lives where and then you know, also notice when something new turns up because oh that doesn't look like the bird I normally see here that was just something different and it becomes exciting. Um, so it's basically doing that and you know getting a pair of binoculars, um, getting a field guide, getting tuned in with other people doing the same thing. And there's a lot more people doing it these days as well. You don't have to wear green and wellies. You can just go out and be cool. You know so. I think it's really easy to get involved and I'm, in, in the time I've been doing this, it's really great to see people who initially were skeptical and then a week later send me emails. Oh my God, I saw a kingfish. I couldn't believe it. You know, so, and it's easy, you know, once you open your eyes, it's so easy and it's so gratifying. It's so, it just makes you feel great, you know? And also now it's a great way. I think in the past it was a bit kind of weird you being a birder, but now if you're single, you tell someone that you're a out, so like, oh my god, you're amazing! You're connected to nature. You must be a great person. So it's a selling, selling,
0: um, selling point there as well. Well, if nothing else, that last point will convince people, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a tradition in my podcast of in, finishing with a few questions from my deck of cards with uh, questions on. Are you up for a couple of these to finish us off? I'm all. I'm I'm there. I'm okay, like you're going to have to... I, you can't choose in person, sadly, because we're not Oops. face-to-face, so you'll have, to, you'll have to trust my card-sharp hands and tell me when to stop. Okay, stop. Stop. What is an absurd thing that you love? <laughs> <laughs> um, absurd thing that I love? Um... You can pass if you want.
1: No, no, no. This is a good one. Actually, I I, I like that question very much. Actually, um, that's a really good question. I mean, mm-hmm. I I don't know what definition of of absurd is really, but oh god. That well, is given a good given that
0: a lot of people would say spending several weeks looking for a large bustard is absurd, I think the the I think absurd can be whatever it appeals to you.
1: Well, the things I tell people that I like that. So people are surprised by I, I mean i love i'm addicted to custard i can have custard anytime anywhere okay. any place give me custard and i'm yours basically okay. there's your answer um, and i'm also i've got secret um love for the electric light orchestra uh post or pre should i say um out uh, mr blue sky anything bef- after that is a little bit ropey but right in the very beginning from the, the late uh, 60s onwards. That's me.
0: Brilliant. They're two fantastic answers, <laughs> right? I'm, enjoy- I'm enjoying this now. You're giving me high hopes. Okay, we'll do another 10-1 stop. Stop now, please. What purchase of £100 or less has most positively impacted your life recently? Custard?
1: No, actually, it was. Um, I think it was um, getting a speaker. Actually, no, it was getting a, a um, charger for my speaker. I got a speaker that I, uh, I use around the house. Right. You know those Bluetooth ones, and I lost the, um, I lost the the the, the uh, charger for it, and I hadn't really used it prior to that much. And then getting that wire changed my whole life really, because I can carry my music around with me. Something as simple as simple as that that really that was only like five five euros. So it really kind of enhanced my
0: life immediately. Nice, with mobile, mobile music again. Nice. Yeah. I see you reaching for your binoculars. Have you spotted something?
1: Yeah, so I've just been seeing a couple of birds moving around up in these eucalyptus. Eucalyptus aren't very, uh, they're sparrows. I think they're Spanish sparrows. Eucalyptus, what's the plural of eucalyptus? Eucalypsi. But anyway... They are not very good. Um They're not very sort of good for biodiversity. They're, they're alien yeah. trees are bought, brought from Australia um by the Franco regime. And the whole idea was to set up these plantations so that they can cut the trees down and set up an industry making paper, which never happens. So the trees are spread. And so I you're being racist trying-
0: against trees now as well as birds?
1: Yeah, but it's not their fault, these trees. I mean, they were just brought <laughs> in. Yeah, but, I mean- Yeah. But yeah, so um, I okay.
0: don't think can hear the power's chirping now, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I can. Nice. Right, n- next question. Scops up. Ooh. How could you be happier? Um, I
1: could be happier on many levels, actually. I think happier if the world kind of came to its senses a bit more. Um, both politically uh, as well as um, environmentally, especially environmentally, but I think that both of them work hand in hand. I'll be a lot happier because I wake up feeling a little bit depressed, but I'm feeling, I'm hoping that things will change in the States, for example, come November and if the fumigation occurs and then our place is cleaned up and it's a lot better. Um, so that's, that's, one, that's one thing. On a personal level, of course, everyone would love more money, but to be honest, I'm not totally motivated by money. That's interesting. A large bird of prey that's flew uh, It's like a buzzard, actually. Um, I'm not motivated by money, to be honest. I'm more interested in, in being happy. And I think I, happiness doesn't really, happiness doesn't really, you know, money, as Beatles say, money doesn't buy you love. And as Prince said, money buys you everything and
0: nothing. Nice. I love the way you zoned out halfway through that question to get your binoculars out and look at the bird of prey. Nice. Um, okay, we'll do one more. I can tell the birds are calling. Right, tell me one. When... Stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who was the most adventurous grown-up you knew when you were a child?
1: There was this guy called Mike. And he ran the social club, the junior club as they called it at the time. He was tall, so I always thought that he knew more than anyone else. Because if you're taller and older, that means you know stuff. And he took me to, um, it took me and a, a group of people youth hostel into Scotland. And I thought he knew everything. You know, he used to, to organise his quizzes on the train and stuff. Um, but the thing is, I remember seeing a golden eagle in the Highlands, and I was pretty sure it was a golden eagle. But he said it was a buzzard. So I took his word for it because he was older than me and tall. And then 20 years later I realized that in fact he was wrong, it was a golden eagle. But he was, you know, by far the person that I thought was the uh, yeah, the most
0: brightest person I knew at the time. Fantastic. Um David, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've really, really enjoyed it. You taught me a lot and you give me lots to think about, and it's been good fun as well. So Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.